0: Well, I'd like to look tonight at uh, possibly what will be a number of Bible studies, two or three, on the subject of evangelism, our mandate for evangelism. It sounds strange to have to say what the Word of God, I believe, says so clearly, that we are all called, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell and to live in such a way as our faith may be made known and clear. We shall consider in this Bible study our mandate, the reasons, the rationale, the biblical evidence for why we are sent and called to go and tell the world, to live so that our lives can be read of all, as it's called. In another Bible study, I hope to look at our motive and the method that the Lord Jesus himself sets down as to how we should go about this great task. Now, everything I'm going to say tonight equally applies to the question of why do we preach the gospel every Lord's Day? Wouldn't once a year be enough? Once a month? Or are we called to preach the gospel and to live the gospel clearly? Well, let me give you some reasons for why... This subject is important, why we must preach the gospel regularly and why we should have a witness as a church and as individuals. Well, the first answer to that question I would give is this. We live in the UK especially and in Europe as a whole in a largely humanistic and secular world. If you go back 70 years... Over half the children in this country attended a Sunday school. They would have known something of who Jesus Christ is. Of the Ten Commandments you wouldn't have to introduce the way of salvation. They would know what sin is. They would know these things when we have a holiday Bible club. We cannot assume that the children even know what the Bible is. We have to explain these things. We live in... In a secular world, so the obvious response is why shouldn't we be declaring, proclaiming, living the gospel as clearly as we possibly can. If we go into the schools, you have to be very careful now. You read the word of God and try and explain it. You walk along a tightrope. You could fall either side and somebody could report you. That's the world that we live in, in this country today. Sunday schools are rare. Less than 2%, probably less than 1% of children have some form of biblical instruction week by week in this country. That would have been 90%, 100, 150 years ago. Well, it's also important because some are fearful they consider today the risks that are involved. If you stand on the street, if you give out tracts, you could be reported. It's still legal to preach the gospel, but fairly frequently we have people arrested wrongly. And if you go onto the streets and give out tracts, yes, there is a degree of risk, so to speak. And so we need to know why we're doing this and how the Lord of The Lord God motivates us through these reasons. It is much easier as a church to say, let's just focus on theology. Let's focus on the sovereignty of God. Let's emphasize election week after week after week. It's a true doctrine. It's in the word of God. But no calling out for men and women to hear. For children to come under the sound of the gospel, it would be easier not to, if we're honest. To stand in this day and age is not so easy. We could also get sidetracked by focusing on minutiae and irrelevant things. We could spend so long focusing upon all the types and the figures and all these things in the book of Revelation. They're wonderful. They've got meaning and purpose, but it would be a sidetrack. No, we need to declare the gospel and to witness as we seek to do. Some are even unsure whether we should have a witness. Don't we leave that to pastors, to missionaries, to those who've been called? Perhaps you could say, some say this, well, I wasn't brought up in that kind of church. The church I went to, The people that went there, they were just the families that had been brought up and we never went out. We relied on the Holy Spirit to bring the people in. That's what we call a form of hyper-Calvinism. And I want to show tonight, the church is not a marina where yachts get moored. It's a place where fishing boats Come in. That's not my expression. That's something that somebody else said. We shouldn't be a place for fancy yachts to come and moor on a Sunday for an hour. We should be for fishing boats to bring their catch, so to speak, from the week that has passed. Well, there is this line of argument that says that evangelism is the work of the Holy Spirit. We agree. It is we can't move or touch or change one soul we agree with that 100% some would say john 6:44 no man can come to me except the father draw him and he will draw all men unto himself that's true we agree with that as well but the bible makes it clear that we are to be involved and we are sent And we are to have an opportunity to declare the gospel. Well, that's why I read Judges chapter 7. Perhaps you'd like to turn that chapter up. Why look at Gideon? Well, we don't need to turn to it, but in chapter 6 we find Gideon hiding. Hiding wheat in the wine press. He was fearful Of the enemy. The Midianites were massive. There's an allegory used of them being like the sand of the sea. And like the grasshoppers. They were innumerable. And he was a frightened man. That might be like us. How can we possibly go against the enemy? Arrayed around like grasshoppers. And so Gideon. He uses a number of excuses. Look down at verse 12. The angel of the Lord, chapter 6, appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valour. He felt the opposite. He felt fearful and afraid. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Well, if, if the Lord was with us, why are there so many? Verse 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel. Gideon? Is he going to do the saving? No, but he's going to be used as though he would be doing the saving. The Lord would use his hands, his voice, the instruments that were put in Gideon's hands, would be used. Thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Did the Lord need Gideon? Of course not. He didn't need an army at all. Very often in the Old Testament we read of wonderful accounts where the enemy was destroyed and there wasn't anybody involved. But here the Lord would use Gideon. Verse 15. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith how shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's making an excuse. Who am I? I'm so weak. I'm the lowest of the low. How can I possibly be used in this respect? Well, I don't want to look at all the verses, but if we go to chapter 7, You know what happens. An army of 32,000. And these were not SAS troops. These were not US Marines. They were volunteers. Uneducated, probably untrained. And anybody that was fearful, go home. 22,000 gone. They're down to 10,000. Now we won't look at why. The Lord uses this strange and curious method to whittle down the number from 10,000 to 300. Perhaps there's no reason, it was just that the Lord wanted a small number. Maybe it was something to do with if they lapped with their hands, they were not bowing down to idols, I don't know. Nobody knows for sure, the word of God doesn't say. But what's clear is at the end of this process, there is only 300 left. And even then, they're divided into three of a hundred. So what's this all about? Do you know what this is about? It's about the fact the Lord uses means. He uses instruments. He doesn't have to. He can work independently. He can work in supernatural ways, and he does. Sometimes... Even without the church, the Lord uses his own power directly, not indirectly through us. Well, that's remarkable. But most often in the economy of God, he delights to work through feeble folk like us. Through weak, poor, fearful people like Gideon who made all the excuses and yet the Lord raised him up. But let's come to what it says at the end of this account. He has some strange means. He has a clay pot, he has a lamp, and he has a trumpet. What are they for? They're instruments. The Lord is going to use the noise of the smashing of the pot, the light of the lamp, and the trumpet to give the sound. These all mean something. The trumpet Is the gospel the lamp? Is the light and the noise? Well, somehow it intimidated the people. The people thought that they were more powerful than they actually were, and all of a sudden, they're killing themselves. Remarkable, isn't it? How the Lord used untrained, fearful people and a few pots and a trumpet or two and a candle. To defeat an army more numerable than a whole swarm, if that's the right term, of grasshoppers. Surely the lesson for us, because there's always lessons here in the Old Testament, is that the Lord usually works through people, through churches, through missions. Calvin said, the gospel doesn't fall from clouds like rain, by accident but is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it that's remarkable isn't it a man who we think of as the person that formed those very memorable doctrines of grace that extol the sovereignty of God that we love and we we teach Calvin also says it's hands the hands of men and women and sometimes children who are used for this purpose. You think of the leper, Naaman. Who was it? An unnamed little maid who was used to bring salvation, to point to where there was to be hope, where the king could be healed. Well, what is evangelism? Is it just for trained people? Well, we want to train people, but no, we shall consider tonight that evangelism is the way we live. It's not something we do. We sometimes get this wrong. Oh, we're going out to do outreach on Saturday for an hour. We're doing outreach on a Saturday. No, our whole lives, the way we live, the way people see the priorities that we take, the choices we take. When we go to worship on the Sunday morning, people see us leaving our homes. That's evangelism. That's living the Christian life. Evangelism is sharing, giving, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to a needy world in whichever and whatever way the Lord opens to us. It should be natural. It should not be something we do. It should be something that we are. It's living in such a way, as I've said already, that we can be read and learned of all men. Do you know when you go to the workplace, the office, some of you work in an office, people are watching. They're watching what you're doing, what you're saying. They ask you questions, what did you do yesterday? Where did you go last night? There's an opportunity to be real, to just live your life. And it's disarming to people when they see the conviction you have and the choices that you take. Let me turn to a number of scriptures. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord Jesus is teaching. And I think there's something quite striking here. This is familiar words. Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus is speaking about salt. He's saying that our lives should be full of salt. We should be those that make a difference. You put salt into food, you can taste, it's there. And the Lord Jesus is saying that we should be different. We should have a taste and a savour to our life, he says, How can I possibly go and do evangelism? How can I witness? Didn't you notice? It's not what you say. It's your good works. We don't like to use that term, do we? Good works. We speak about good works cannot save you. And that's true. The Roman Catholics, they tell you all that they've done. All the wonderful things in a person's life. And we say, no, good works don't save you. But good works are the fruit. And the Lord Jesus himself says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see the way you live, your good works, your choices, your priorities, the things that you do with your life. And that's what people will notice. You don't need to be fearful and timid because... If you're living the Christian life as we ought, people will see the difference in your life compared to others. Let me put it like this. Can you imagine a church that has no worship? You go to the church and there's no singing. There's no lifting up of our voices unto God in heaven. You'd think, well, that's a strange church. Church? But what if a church had no witness? Would that be a strange church? No. There are many churches today, they don't really open the doors. They don't use the opportunities that they could. Well that wouldn't be an obedient church, would it? If there was no living the Christian life, declaring the gospel with all the opportunities. Yes, it's difficult in a village where perhaps there's few people. But we use the opportunities. We don't hide our light. We don't store up our salt. Our light is to be seen and our salty lives are to be tasted and to be known and to make a difference. Well I want to give you tonight very briefly and I hope these are all very obvious seven reasons for why we are to have a witness individually and as a church, as I trust we do already, let's consider these. The first one is this. Surely this is the top of the list. Christ had compassion for souls, for sinners. Don't need to turn to it, but Matthew 9, 36 says, Christ saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, the heart of the Saviour sees little sheep wandering around in danger, no protection, no food, no fold to hide in, to be protected by, and the heart of the Saviour sees individual sheep and he would gather them. He would draw them. He would go to them and he would reach them. I can mention another text that speaks of Christ. They said of him, Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The word receive means welcomes. Like a person expecting a guest and they're invited into the home. You're looking for them, you're waiting for that guest to come. This man, Christ, received, who are the sinners? Prostitutes. Drunkards, lepers, the nondescript, the underclass and Christ receives. He didn't mind being accused of that, did he? That was something that we should be proud of. He was true of him. He receives sinners and eats with them. to eat with somebody in that culture meant that you were identifying with them that's what they said of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had compassion for the worst, for the low, for the needy, for the outcasts of Israel, as they were called, well, shouldn't we? No cold indifference, Noah will rely on the Holy Spirit. He'll do the work. Henry Martin, a great missionary to India, and Persia, modern-day Iran, He said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of mission. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we shall become. Do you hear that? When we're walking a life close with the Lord, nearer, still nearer, my God to thee we sing, the more we will desire to share the gospel, to receive sinners to let our light so shine before men. Well, that's the first argument. Perhaps we could have dwelt on that all evening. Secondly, one of the marks that somebody has become a Christian, I quoted this on Sunday, Matthew 10, 32. It speaks that we must confess with our lips. Well, yes, if you believe the work of the Holy Spirit has come into your life and that's a work we cannot do, we must confess with our lips, I've been changed. I have peace in my heart. My burden's been lifted. But it doesn't just mean that. It means now we won't mind telling others. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. And surely that's what will happen. Just ponder this. When the Lord Jesus was going to the cross, what did his disciples in the main do? They were gripped by fear, self-preservation. They didn't want to be identified with the Saviour. But what happened to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? They were moved in the opposite direction. Nicodemus the man who had come to Jesus by night now he stands up and he identifies himself with the one who's about to be crucified no longer secret disciples Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus silent secret for so long but then they had to confess with their lips just at the time when Peter was going quiet. That's sobering, isn't it? Are we quiet? Are we not letting our light shine before men and women? Are we not willing to give a reason for the hope that is within us? Well, thirdly, we perhaps could have gone here first. Go to Matthew chapter 24. I'll give you the text this time. Matthew 24 and verse 14 This is immediately before the Lord Jesus is about to go to the cross and its timing is therefore significant Matthew 24:14 He says speaking in the previous verses about there will be a falling away and there will be false prophets and there will be apostasy verse 13 but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved That doesn't mean that's what will save us, but those who have been saved will endure to the end. Verse 14, (laughs) and this gospel, Christ speaking, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now some would say, well, that's just the disciples. He was just speaking to his own. Really? If that was true, the church would have died when those disciples had been called home. No, they're representative of all Christians. If you argue that, every time the Lord Jesus teaches the disciples, it's just an exclusive ban. No, this is speaking to the church and to us. This gospel, this good news of the kingdom shall be preached, and it has been, in all the world for a witness to the nations. He's saying, go, go out. The disciples couldn't possibly have gone to all the nations of the world. There was only a handful of them and they were to lose one of their number. He says, go and make disciples. Let's go down to chapter 28. Now Christ has died, he's risen and it's always significant just before he goes to the cross and after when he appears again he mentions the mission and the mandate that the disciples are to have. Let's read from verse 16, Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples, Judas has gone went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, where he had called them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now this is significant. Christian people, some will have doubts, the disciples did. How does the Lord Jesus deal with doubts among the disciples? Well, this is what he says to doubters. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, a second commission, and teach all nations, that's what they're to do, go, they're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, here's the encouragement for the doubters. I am with you always. Mm -hmm. Is the Lord with those that won't witness? Will it be true that in the church, those that have doubts are perhaps those that don't have a witness? They're not standing, they're not speaking, they're not living as they ought. And as a result they will have doubts. It's not a coincidence that the disciples, as they see the Lord Jesus, have doubts. And Christ deals with the doubts by saying, go, take the gospel. And as you take the gospel, I will be with you always. So, first of all, we've thought of Christ's compassion. Secondly, the need for public confession. Thirdly, The disciples are sent, representatives of the church. Well, you probably know where I'm going next. Acts chapter 1, Christ is about to ascend into heaven. Again, the timing of this commission that's given to the new church is very significant. He's about to go into heaven And he gives the most important verse, the key to the whole of the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Pentecost is about to happen. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, not just the disciples... But the apostles and the whole of the early church are given its mandate. Just before Christ ascends up into heaven, he tells them, This is to be your main task. You are to be witnesses of me, not just here, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. The early church is is given a mandate to witness. So we have a fourth argument and reason as to why we are to have a witness and how as we witness, doubts will be dispelled. The presence of the Lord is promised to all who faithfully declare the gospel through their life and through their lips. Let's look at a fifth argument. Romans chapter 10 very, very well-known text to do with the preaching of the gospel. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 and 14. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But what happens if they're not elect in my street, in my workplace? What happens if they've not been called? Well, we go to verses like this, one of many. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, that's true. But what difference does it make to me? Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Some don't believe. We have to persuade them. We have to give them the evidence, the reasons apologetics, the explanation and the arguments for why we do believe. That's what the word apologesia means. And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? Why have they not heard? Because we've not preached. We've not witnessed. We've not given a tract. We've not told them of the Saviour. We've not lived as we ought to have done. This isn't the Holy Spirit's work only. It is to save a soul, but he works through the means of men and women so the gospel can be heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher, one who proclaims, one who witnesses, one who brings the gospel? And verse 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? The word for preach there means to proclaim in the broadest possible sense. Not just the man that stands at the front, but everybody that says a word in season. Everybody that proclaims through printed means, verbal means, life, lips. So another argument, the gospel must be heard if souls are to be saved. Just two more reasons we can't possibly look at the gospel and our witness without turning to the apostle Paul 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 22 and 3. We'll just turn to one more scripture after this. 1 Corinthians 9 and verses 22 and 23. This is Paul speaking. Paul the great evangelist who went and preached in Greece and Asia Minor and church after church after church was founded. Usually in homes, but through his witness. This is what he says one Corinthians nine twenty two to the weak became I as weak, as though I was weak, that I might gain the weak he wanted to win them. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Paul, have you lost your mind? You can't save anybody. But Paul thinks he's like Gideon. Paul thinks his hands, his voice, his lips, his life. It's as though Paul will be the instrument. Verse 23. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Paul is behaving, he's thinking as though... He saves people, Paul you you're wrong. Only the Holy Spirit changes a heart and convicts of sin and awakens us to the need for new life. Paul, you' you're greatly mistaken. No, we're mistaken. You see, Paul is being used. He's the instrument. He's a weak instrument. He admits that. I became as weak that I might gain the weak he's actually talking about something entirely different. He's talking about he became one who would dress and eat and do the things that were expected. He became like a weaker brother so that he might be able to gain a Jewish man or woman who had not left their old Jewish ways before they were converted. So there's a sixth argument. Paul's attitude is that his hands, his lips, his life would be used almost as though he was the means of salvation. He wasn't. Only the Holy Spirit, only God was. And the final argument I want to look in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We turn to this. This is speaking of the church. And it's speaking of what happens in churches. Sometimes you get problems in churches, let's be honest. Sometimes there's murmuring, complaining, criticism, backbiting, gossip, and so on. And so, Paul, speaking to the church at Philippi, a church that he had been instrumental in forming, he says here, Philippians 2. Verse 14, he's telling them, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Stop arguing, stop backbiting and sneering and making comments that are not really necessary. Verse 15, that once you've dropped those things you may be blameless and harmless The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He's speaking about our witness. We shouldn't be like that. We should be blameless without blame before our Saviour. Among whom, he goes back to Matthew 5 language. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. What's Paul talking about? In a church? If we're not witnessing, if we're not teaching the children, if we're not about the Lord's business as Christ was when his parents found him, when they lost him, didn't you know I would be about my father's business, the kingdom of heaven? If we're not about the Lord's business, there might be murmurings, there might be criticism, there might be complaining. And we would then be blamed. We wouldn't be harmless. We would have a responsibility. We wouldn't be living as a light in a perverse and crooked nation. Because we would be to blame. Because what were we doing in the church that year, 2023? Oh, we were dealing with this person's problem and that person's problem. We were dealing with this complaint and that complaint. And therefore, says Paul, you're not blameless and without rebuke. That's sobering, isn't it? That's what Paul is arguing. He's Mm -hmm. saying, The church at Philippi, forget those things that will be a distraction, a waste of time, a damage to your witness, and you will no longer have a light that will be seen because it will go dim or it will even go out. What a shame that would be. So the opposite is true. Let's finish in a positive way. If we want to be blameless... Without rebuke before God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, our light must shine. It must be seen. Bedford must see it. And beyond. Deaf people, hearing people, young people, people in care homes, in the prison, wherever, whenever, however. And if that's our priority, then our light will be seen in the world. And the Lord will save you from my worst characteristics and your worst characteristics. Because we won't be looking at one another. We will have our eyes on Christ, who saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. And he saw them and he welcomed them and he received them because he was the one that received sinners. Let's close tonight.